0: Hello, I am Mayan Owens, and welcome to another episode of Sound Strategic. In today's episode, it is my pleasure to welcome a new colleague onto the show, Dr. Samir Puri. Samir recently joined the IISS office in Singapore as a senior fellow in urban security and hybrid warfare. Samir has worked in government and in academia. He was previously the assistant head of research at the Development, Concepts, and Doctrine Center, the British Ministry of Defense's think tank. In 2017, he authored the Commonwealth Secretariat's Strategy on Countering Violent Extremism. His previous academic posts include lecturer in war studies at King's College London and adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins SAIS Europe. Earlier in his career, Samir worked for the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, as a secondment with the OSCE to monitor the war in eastern Ukraine, and his career began as a defense analyst at RAND Europe. In 2016, he authored an IISS Adelphi book entitled Fighting and Negotiating with Armed Groups. His latest book is The Great Imperial Hangover, How Empires Have Shaped the World. We therefore wanted to take this opportunity to talk to Samir about the evolution of hybrid warfare in recent years, the challenges it poses, and how it may differ in the Asian context. So Samir, welcome to the show.
1: Maya, thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here and and indeed a pleasure to, to call you a colleague now. Uh, having just arrived at the Institute just a couple of months ago.
0: So perhaps we could start with how you first got involved in researching this topic and what we mean when we talk about hybrid warfare.
1: Uh, So my interest in hybrid warfare began uh, after I returned from a year working in East Ukraine, uh, monitoring the onset of the war in 2014-15. And I can tell you this, uh, before I went to Ukraine, on secondment, uh, there was no talk of hybrid war as describing what was happening. When I came back, uh, the term had diffused itself uh, across the strategic lexicon so much so that it was actually impossible to get away from it. And I was I was quite struck by the fact that uh, every now and again in strategic studies, a piece of jargon embeds itself very much solidly uh, into into the way in which discussions unfold. Uh, it was a bit a little bit like uh coin and counterinsurgency a decade ago uh You couldn't walk for two paces without you know tripping over a mention of coin uh so my interest really was born from that on the ground experience of of seeing what was you know for all this sort of the novelty uh supposed by hybrid war what was on the ground was actually very much a traditional conflict which was accompanied by some you know pretty innovative use of subversion as well so that really was uh, the sort of the personal connection to the term.
0: And what do you think we mean today when we talk about hybrid warfare?
1: I think a lot of people uh, like to use hybrid warfare quite liberally uh, as a tag to explain almost any act by a malign international rival. Uh, I think it's so wide now that if you think about it with a with a clearer head, starting to encompass almost every kind of influence operation, state-sponsored industrial espionage, sabotage, All sorts of things that, uh, you know, Western states might uh, assign to Russia and perhaps also to China in some instances uh, as actions that are happening sort of below the radar. Um, Personally, I think that uh, the term the grey zone uh, is rather more useful in in sort of contextualising the the environment in which that sort of panoply of activities I've just listed unfolds uh, rather than hoovering it all up into hybrid war. Uh, The big distinction, Mayor, with hybrid war, I think, is that there needs to be some kind of war going on. Uh, And so if you take that as sort of the starting point, then you're talking about a a cocktail of some degree of conventional war or kinetic warfare activity admixed with a cocktail of subversion, uh, the co-opting of non-state actor proxies, superficial deniability on behalf of the culpable state actor. Uh, It won't necessarily always look like Ukraine. Um, but just going back to that experience, really, there there was a lot of actual warfare also going on as well.
0: I mean, why is that a useful distinction for policymakers to make?
1: Um, it's useful because unless you have a targeted uh, response, you may end up crafting a series of policy tools with no real sense of when uh, they could be applied. And more worryingly, you might not be able to identify when you are the subject of a hybrid war or when one of your allies is the subject of a hybrid war. Uh, an ally could potentially, su- a smaller state could potentially suffer uh, some sort of malign activity, some sort of negative information operations and so on and so forth. Perhaps this is a harbinger of, of a hybrid war uh, campaign. But in of itself, maybe it's better explained as being some sort of you know covert intervention, some kind of uh, subversion ca- uh, tactic. Uh, that may or may not be uh, something that leads to to the onset of a, of a hybrid war. So that really is a danger, isn't it? Of, uh, of of thinking that you're involved in something that you're not. And you know, potentially in the world of international affairs, and especially in the sort of more more intense geopolitical contests that we're now seeing, uh, leaving your adversary sort of wrong footed is part of the part of the the the, the objective. So you do want to be careful. You're not you don't wrong foot yourself by thinking something is happening uh, when it's not particularly uh, uh, the case.
0: I mean, do you think that hybrid warfare is just a new way for great powers to wage war indirectly? Or do you think that the tactics involved make hybrid warfare plausible for any country? Is this is this something that any and all countries can can be involved in?
1: Well, yeah, the question of the novelty of hybrid warfare is one that, you know, for those of us with a historical head on our shoulders, and I include myself in that category, uh, the novelty is is pretty low. And you, know, you can pretty much disprove the novelty by just pointing at, for example, the Bay of Pigs operation in the middle of the Cold War, in which everyone knows the story in the CIA, the American government of the day paid and tried to sponsor Cuban exiles and provide them with some, you know, deniable uh, support uh, to reverse uh, the revolutionary outcomes in in Cuba, and it failed. Now, if you read the operational ingredients that uh, JFK signed off on, then uh, they're not so different. If you replace, of course, the internet with radio broadcasts, and you know, if you you know move the technology back a few decades. It's not so different to what uh, the West might be seeing happening uh, in terms of the way Russia has approached some of its operations today. Um, I think every generation does like to find its own terminology, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. And certainly the technological revolutions that have uh, changed all of our lives in the last two decades, they have to be factored in in some way. And uh, of course, the speed and reach of technology is unrecognisable. Uh, even to even to people from you know, 15 or 16 years ago, simply because of the advent of smartphones from 2007 onwards. So I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with having a newer term. Uh, but we should always remind ourselves that, uh, you know, as Mark Twain said, that you know, there really are only echoes of, of past actions, it, the past rhymes with the present. Uh there's there's nothing really new under the sun when it comes to the achievement of, of deception in, in warfare at, at the level of the principle of achieving deception.
0: I suppose my question was more about the, the types of actors we'll see in uh, conducting hybrid warfare as you define it. Um, is it just limited to the United States, Russia and China? Or do you think other countries are also playing a role here? Um, we'll talk a little bit later on about China's maritime militia. But of course, other smaller countries have their own, if not much smaller, and perhaps less capable, less equipped maritime militia. So I'm just thinking about the diversity of actors here.
1: Yeah, one of the misnomers of uh, the term great power uh, competition, a great power uh, conflict, is that whilst it usefully draws our attention to the Russias and Chinas of this world, uh, there are many more, I suppose some would call mid- medium-sized countries that are being much more assertive, uh, just think about Turkey and its expeditionary operations today. I mean, I'm not saying that's hybrid warfare, of course. Um, so there are countries of differing sizes that could potentially engage in activities that, that meet uh, the criteria. And since the term hybrid warfare, really, its ubiquity is, is really in the last five or six years. You know, its origins are with Frank Hoffman in 2006 with his article looking at the Hezbollah conflict, but uh, as with the arrival of any new piece of jargon, you can backcast it to other conflicts and older theatres. And you know, at the start of my career, I worked very extensively on Pakistan and Pakistan's own strategies in, in, in it, within its own borders and in its, in its region. And certainly, if you look at the Kashmir conflict—not to go down that rabbit hole—some uh, of the ways in which Pakistan tried to offset uh, the difference in size with India was indeed to sponsor proxies to do so in a superficially deniable way and to try to subvert uh, India's claims of authority over Kashmir. Um, You know, that's sort of 1980s, 1990s vintage. But one would uh, imagine if that sort of strategy was tried afresh today, that it would immediately be determined as a hybrid warfare strategy, especially because the Pakistanis also supported it with uh, the overt use of their their armed forces in certain instances as well. And another interesting parallel, very quickly, Mayor, on that, is, of course, the Pakistanis then immediately uh, talk of how they have suffered uh, the use of uh, Indian proxies in their own territory. Um, I, I'm certainly minded of the fact that uh, Russian academics, whenever the top topic of hybrid warfare comes up, immediately point to the colour revolutions uh, within the Eastern European sphere. And immediately they say, well, you know, Western academics and strategists, you say this is hybrid warfare that we're employing. What about the hybrid warfare that we've suffered in kind? and then you've got this sort of the unending uh, debate of of uh, you know who started it which you know unfortunately a lot of international disputes do come down to this somewhat you know playground formulation of well they started it and not us um you do have uh, i think in in the annals of of recent conflicts several others that can indeed meet this threshold of this cocktail of state and non-state actors and subversion uh, being used to grind away slowly at a strategic conundrum, to express a grievance uh, by powers of uh, both great and maybe not small, but certainly medium-sized in in military capability.
0: That's a fantastic answer. I love the playground politics part of it. You mentioned that your first experience of hybrid warfare was from your time observing Russian-backed separatists groups in eastern Ukraine. Now that your focus is pivoted to the Asia-Pacific, what are some of the differences in hybrid warfare that you're expecting to see in the region? Or are we going to see more similarities than differences?
1: Well, they're certainly going to be different. And you know, the trick with strategic uh, analysis uh, you know, writ large is you have to have the flexibility of mind to understand that uh, while we have may have principles and terminology, uh, how they manifest in any particular context really is 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 almost the be all and end all of that scenario. Uh, terms like hybrid warfare—they're just there to really set us set our minds in motion uh, and in the right direction. Uh, certainly, compared to to what I experienced uh, in Ukraine in twenty fourteen fifteen, you know, I touched on this earlier. Uh, I mean, you know, the equipment being used in the, you know the kinetic part of the conflict was so old fashioned. Uh, it's real Cold War era kit. There are multiple launch rocket systems, you know, uh, firing. Uh, quite indiscriminately at uh, enemy positions. Uh, the actual conflict in positional terms was quite dynamic when I arrived. You know, there was a peninsula of government-controlled territory stretching to a town called Debaltseve in east Ukraine. In my time there, that came on sustained assault, ground assault, and uh, that was lost to the separatists. I even saw, you know, a brace of surface-to-air missiles being fired from a Ukrainian Armed Forces uh, position at Kramatorsk Airport where they'd sort of set up a HQ, uh, I think that was uh, you know the day after there'd been a cluster bomb attack in the city that we were all based in. So you know, I sort of paint these quite dramatic scenes uh, because you know I do want listeners to realise that when we talk about the hybrid war in Ukraine, yes, there's a Little Green Men in Crimea. That was an episode that, of course, happened in March of 2014. The slow grind of the Donbass war, which actually grinds on to this day, albeit at a slightly lower intensity uh, than, than was the case when I was there. Uh, honestly, it was the 100th anniversary of the, of the First World War, in fact. And, you know, I was seeing trenches and I was seeing fixed positions, I was seeing indiscriminate artillery and I was seeing armoured vehicles uh, being used in anger uh, by both sides. So that met the criteria of being uh, a hybrid war, meets that criteria of being the hybrid war. And yet uh, when you're actually there, it seemed quite old fashioned. Um, moving theater, I think we need to retain that same flexibility of mind, uh, when thinking about East Asia and thinking about how, uh, sources of tension and hotspots that we all know, uh, for example, Taiwan, and we'll come back to Taiwan, I think in a moment, um, Taiwan is not going to suffer anything, uh, that looked like, uh, the Ukraine conflict. Of course, it's separated by, you know, by, by water. So that's one of the big differences anyway. Um, but really what we're talking about with hybrid war is the innovative and the surprising combination of, act- of actors and, uh, and ingredients into the strategic toolkit that surprises and overwhelms uh, any defensive uh, uh, arrangements that are already set in place. And perhaps even the spectre of that sort of novel combination uh, can be enough uh, to keep uh, a smaller state uh, off balance and thinking that its conventional military balance is not the only way of, of accounting for its ability to defend itself and indeed for its allies to come to its defence potentially in the future. So that's not a, not a direct question, answer to your question, Mayor, other than to say that uh, you know, if Asia, the Asia-Pacific is to see hybrid wars, they will, they will look completely different.
0: Well, let's talk about the Taiwan example quickly. Talk me through what you think hybrid warfare would look like in a Taiwan scenario? Sure. Well, this
1: is actually going to feature in part of part of the ongoing research uh, that i'm I'm involved in here in the Asia Pacific uh, region in the Asia office. And uh, you know I'll be able to give you sort of a fuller fuller answer on that in in a little while. But I think one of the points of adaption is is moving the hybrid warfare model from the crossing of land borders to the crossing of maritime borders. And uh, there's been a lot of talk about uh, about fishery, fishing the, and uh, Chinese fishing fleets as potentially being a, a vehicle through which uh, China can, perhaps even without any overt state involvement, uh, lay greater claim to to areas of, of maritime space. Uh, now, I would never expect, you know, to have anything as kilometers of fishing fleets, you know, in the shadow of a warship, sort of sailing forward. But that sort of thing may well actually be, uh, uh, you know, a gambit used to attract some kind of retaliatory measure. Whether that retaliation is rhetorical, perhaps that then would lead to uh, the ability to build some kind of tit-for-tat argument over a quite ancillary issue that can then spill over into, into something that brings in other, other uh, uh, tools into, into the equation. Um, just thinking back as well around the possibility of using international treaties as a point of provocation, uh, Ukraine, as we all remember, was all about the accession treaty into the European Union. That there was vacillation over signing uh, in Kiev by the Yanukovych government, then a popular revolt to express discontent that there were there was feet dragging over that. Of course, there'll be no, no such direct equivalent, but... Uh, the notion of overlapping international uh, uh, clubs and, and certainly trade clubs uh, is, is a really important feature of the Asia-Pacific Asia region. Uh, competing claims to uh, preferential trade ar- arrangements. Uh, certainly, there is a, the potential for uh, overlapping uh, preferential trade arrangements to be to be suggested, not necessarily only to Taiwan, but to, to different countries in the region. And for disputes to potentially spring up around uh, issues of well economic statecraft that could potentially find some expression uh, in in hostilities. so how you get from from one to the other, uh, you know, I can't give you any firm firm answers or or roadmaps. All I can do is to present to you a potential start point and a potential sort of culminating point in a dispute. And and then to convey, I think the importance of, of of us thinking very flexibly about that sort of spiral of descent, that potential spiral of disputes, and then apply that to different uh, Asian Pacific uh, contexts. So clearly, may my answer is is quite hypothetical, and you know, long may it remain, and forever may it re- remain hypothetical. But these are some of the uh, hypotheses. I think it's it's quite responsible for us to actually pose to think about what. Uh, destabilization and escalation might potentially look like, with a hybrid war uh, frame in mind, uh, in different regions and in, in the Asia Pacific, in particular.
0: Indeed, and and just for our listeners who might not be aware uh, or knowledgeable on the little blue men in the South China Sea operating around Taiwan, China's maritime fishing fleet, um, the maritime militia operates as a three pronged strategy of Chinese maritime power projection together with the Chinese Coast Guard and the Chinese PLA Navy, of course. My question for you, though, is how do we differentiate a maritime militia from a normal Chinese fisherman?
1: Um, with great difficulty, if uh, the strategy uh, works out well from a, from a Chinese perspective. Um, the uh, confusion of attribution is something that is a a permanent feature of the strategic landscape. Um, I think for for a, a good decade after nine eleven, confusion of attribution was primarily thought of in relation to terrorist acts. You know, a bomb would go off somewhere, and there'd be competing claims as to who detonated it. Um, we still have that reality, and I think in addition, we now have overlaid with that uh, the intensity of regional and and you know great power competition, so to speak. So the idea that uh, attribution could be confused between a commercial objective uh, the objective of individual entrepreneurs or business people with a particular responsibility or interest in a region uh, and the state uh, I think is is a very real feature of the scenario that you've you've described again playing that out into specifics is unwise and I think it is actually wise when thinking uh, about the potential for this uh, to speak in in quite general terms because you don't want to shut your mind off from thinking about uh, one particular way in which the scenario could actually develop uh, momentum, uh, but certainly the confusion of attribution is is one of the one of the the, the underlying uh, girders uh, for a hybrid war approach.
0: Now moving on to economic coercion, a topic that you just mentioned, China prides itself on placing economics first in its relations with other countries which perhaps differs somewhat from how the U.S. and other countries in the liberal democratic West engage with countries through their foreign relations, through the promotion of democratic principles to varying extents. Now that China's economic influence around the world has become more established, do you think that economic statecraft will become uh, a, a more central or key aspect of hybrid warfare in the Asian context? I'm thinking here in particular, of the recent diplomatic rift between Australia and China, with China essentially cutting Australian imports as an attempt to coerce a political response or to punish.
1: Yeah, you know, that's uh, the first part of your question hit upon one of my one of my pet favorite themes, which is the extent to which uh, powerful countries in the world uh, have the self-awareness as to how some of their quite natural tendencies are perceived by others. But we'll come back to that point. This is around democracy. Uh, versus Chinese economic statecraft. Um, Just very quickly on the the Australia uh, um, dispute with China. I mean, this, uh, you know, as we're sitting here uh, having our conversation, this is immediately in the wake of the provocative tweets by uh, Chinese foreign ministry uh, 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 spokesman uh, depicting an Australian soldier, a very poor uh, CGI photoshopped style depiction of of an Australian soldier uh, engaged in, in, a, in a war crime, there's allusion to uh, Australia's own inquiry into the conduct of some of its special forces in the Afghanistan campaign. Um, See, so this uh, tit for tat uh, between China and Australia has become pretty bitter pretty quickly, and it's remained at the realm of uh, you know, rhetorical jabs going in both directions, and in in terms of uh, preventing the import of certain Australian goods. This sort of dispute—I mean, this is not this is not hybrid war. There's no warfare accompanying this dispute. This sort of dispute is going to become, I think, increasingly common in international politics and in foreign policy. Certainly, in you know the early part of the 2020s, um, because the world is is adjusting to the fact that uh, liberal, democratic, capitalist norms of of discourse do not have the monopoly that they once had in the conduct of of these conversations. Uh, These sorts of disputes are actually unthinkable, even as recently as a decade ago, uh, let alone in the 1990s and in the post-Cold War. And, you know, I think this gets back to that that theme I mentioned at the start of of my answer now, is is the extent to which uh, the powerful countries of the world have the self-awareness to see how their uh, sort of norms and assumptions are being perceived around the world. Um, We are definitely in the sort of post-Fukuyama moment, Uh, When. Whether you think that autocracy is is sort of fighting a sort of a comeback for itself, uh, certainly through Chinese and Russian models and how they're being expressed and diffused uh, around the world and the inspiration they provide to others in smaller countries who who don't necessarily want to have free and fair elections. Um, This really has gained astonishing momentum in the last few years. Uh, this is of course overlap with a crisis of confidence in certain parts of the west uh, in the u s during during the trump era uh, in the u k some of the uncertainties uh, heralded by brexit um but i think um you know one of the ways I like to look at all of these all of these issues is is through the lens of of you know, our post imperial world and uh, this is a theme that we we sort of mentioned at the very start of our discussion um certainly uh for the for the economic statecraft of, of the Chinese, they're trying to, trying to establish a greater sway in their region and further afield with, with the Belt and Road Initiative, something I know you've, you've been working on very extensively, which i look forward to, to talking about more in a moment. Um, but it really is about how you achieve influence in a post-imperial world. You know, until not that long ago, conquering your neighbours if they are weaker than you was the rule of the political road, and that was the rule of the political road since ancient times, uh, but the world of empires, of formal empires, came to an end over the course of the 20th century. And we have a world of informal empires where having a decisive stake in a smaller neighbour or perhaps even a veto over their economic or political policy through a disproportionate degree of influence. Uh, that really is how you achieve um, uh, the construction of an informal empire. And uh, the Chinese would point out that the Americans have been running an informal empire based uh, to a certain degree on economic statecraft, but also to a degree on, on the diffusion of, of military bases globally uh, in large numbers, especially in the Asia-Pacific. Asia and the Chinese would say the Americans have been doing that since the end of World War II. So it's 75 odd years. So we've got a very well-established informal empire now butting heads with an informal empire in the making. And I think uh, you know, China's economic statecraft uh, should, be, should be understood in that in that context.
0: And does that informal empire of the Belt and Road Initiative and perhaps even the digital Silk Road, I know that you're going to be working on some digitally related topics as well in your future work. Does that enable greater hybrid warfare capabilities for China abroad in the future, or does it just create more vulnerabilities for Beijing?
1: One of the great things about hybrid war, paradoxically, is it does indicate some stability in the international system. You know, It is a function of intense great power competition, uh, without great powers fighting each other. Uh, in other words, short of World War Three, uh, there is the possibility that uh, China would find hybrid war style approaches to be uh, the way in which they would want to extend uh, you know, m- a military uh, uh, sort of gambit in a particular theatre um, to the tolerance of, of the US. And this is another phrase I find quite useful is tolerance warfare so it's a phrase that that appears in the the latest S strategic survey in fact in the, in some of the opening pages it's a really important uh uh phrase because again it's another paradoxical phrase but it indicates uh that a a powerful country with a series of grievances is able to engage in quite aggressive uh tactics potentially even hybrid warfare uh, and get away with it because it's calibrated at a level uh below attracting a response in kind or a withering response uh, by the US or by local allies of, of the target of that aggression. Um, in terms of the options that the Chinese have got, if we think about, you know, what China's rise is currently associated with. Of course, it's the Belt and Road Initiative. It's the military modernization, which is quite extensive. Uh, it's, of course, its posture in the South China Sea in terms of maritime uh, positioning and aerial Uh, aerial activities in the airspace. Um, It's domestic repression in Hong Kong and Xinjiang province as well. I'm just thinking about all of the characteristics that one would associate with uh, Chinese power as a very broad concept. And if you think from the perspective of a Chinese strategist, you've got quite a list, quite a range of different uh, proclivities, uh, equipment, tactics, of mentalities, of levers that you could potentially combine in quite an innovative way uh, in a different theatre elsewhere. Once again, this is all very hypothetical, Mayor, and uh, and I, I I I do caveat that this by saying that you know we are thinking about the strategic stability of the Asia Pacific in the 2020s, and we're thinking about uh, the future. We're thinking about uh, how uh, not only the U.S. and European allies, but countries in the region, could be caught flat-footed by a sudden. Uh, deterioration in relations are a sudden uh, aggressive gambit that seems to come out of nowhere, but at the same time uses the raw material that is already somehow in evidence in front of our own eyes.
0: That's a great answer. Maybe just to follow up on that, do you think that the US and its allies are equally capable of hybrid warfare? I mean, we talk a lot about Russia and China, and we have in this episode. Um, are, is the West, are Western countries equally capable or should they even venture into this?
1: Well, the the U.S. in particular has a a, a great pedigree during the Cold War of sometimes succeeding and sometimes failing to support uh, different factions in in different zones of contestation uh, with the Soviet Union. Uh, I've mentioned uh, the Bay of Pigs episode, which is, of course, a disaster. Uh, We all know about uh, the operations in Afghanistan in the 1980s. But uh, mayor, what's happened is with the the expected complacency of the post Cold War period, uh, with the US as the you know, undisputed system hegemon, you know the, the heavyweight champion of the world, uh, the necessity of engaging in covert gambits declined, uh, because the possibilities for engaging in overt gambits uh, increased. Um, you know the possibility of gaining a UN Security Council resolution as a rationale for regime change is something that we saw in the 90s. The possibility of NATO moving in uh, as in in a nation building uh, endeavour. Perhaps there are some voices of opposition in some parts of the international community. But in general, uh, the West could still speak of the international community and and punish a recalcitrant leader somewhere. These are some of the assumptions of the post-Cold War, post-9-11 world. Uh, that we're starting to see fall away. And I think consequently for Western countries, uh, the ability to engage in the grey zone and indeed the the desire to engage in in the grey zone to potentially uh, uh, counter hybrid wars with gambits, not necessarily in kind, since they would certainly need to meet the moral tests and the legal tests of Western countries, which may well be much more stringent uh, than authoritarian countries, uh, the need to refresh that toolkit and the mentalities around it is definitely there. And that's I think, is one of the stories of, you know, I certainly wouldn't say we're at the end of the 9-11 cycle. You know, we're coming to 20 years since then. And I think some of these strategic assumptions of the post-9-11 world uh, are definitely, definitely falling away quite rapidly.
0: Well, Samir, I think that is an intriguing and excellent point to end this episode on. Thank you for joining us on the show. It has been a pleasure talking to you and now also getting to call you a colleague as well. And I am very much looking forward to you helping us understand these questions and perhaps coming up with some answers through your work into the future.
1: Thanks very much for having me, Maya. A real pleasure.
0: And thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Please do follow, rate and subscribe to Sound Strategic wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts to keep up to date with all the latest episodes. And for more in-depth analysis of the key international security and defense issues from around the world, be sure to follow the WWS on Twitter, LinkedIn, or visit the WWS website. Thank you and see you next time.